Hello and welcome. You are listening to the Wise Athletes Podcast, where we invite you to join our journey to understand how older athletes can achieve high performance and longevity in athletics. I am Joe Lavelle with Dr. Glenn Winkle, and this is episode 19 of our podcast. Glenn and I are joined today by E.C. Sinkowski. E.C. is the founder and owner of Optimize Me Nutrition. E.C. is highly educated in nutrition and experienced in working with athletes. Nutrition has been described with a chuckle as a pseudoscience masquerading as a religion. There is so much new information, interpretations, and conspiracy theories that come out all the time that people don't know what to do except stay out of it or choose sides. I've done it myself, again and again. EC's perspective is refreshingly simple. She doesn't advocate for extremes or even any particular diet. EC's advice is to keep it simple when it comes to choosing a formula for what to eat and how much. Don't make a list of a thousand rules of things to avoid and do. Instead, EC's approach is to focus on what matters the most and then fine-tune as you get closer to your personalized diet that best fits your goals and lifestyle. It makes sense to me. After talking to EC, I'd say the perfect nutrition plan is so simple there are obviously no oversights. Not so complex that there are no obvious oversights. Listen in as EC walks us through how to think about food for athletes and how to make good, evidence-based decisions about what to eat and how much to best fit our goals and lifestyle. I think you'll find it interesting, and I think you might even pick up a few tricks for finding the diet that you'll enjoy and stick to. As always, Glenn and I hope you find this information helpful in your quest to become a wise athlete. Good morning. Our discussion today is about nutrition for the older athlete with a focus on optimizing or at least improving recovery. I'm joined today by E.C. Sinkowski, founder and owner of Optimize Me Nutrition. Welcome, E.C. Thank you so much for having me on. I appreciate you taking some time out of your busy day to join us. Nutrition is one of my favorite topics, and I've been looking forward to having you on here ever since I was introduced to you by Charlie Merrill. Yeah. Of course, Glenn is on all the podcasts. Thank you, Glenn, for joining us as well. All right, Joe. Good to see you. EC, can you give us a little bit of background uh, about you so that our audience can understand where your knowledge and perspective on this subject comes from? Sure. Yeah, I started Optimize Me Nutrition in January 2018 after finishing a master's in nutrition and functional medicine at the end of 2017. Um, that was my second master's. I do have a good amount of education in the biological life sciences, including bio biochemical engineering and a first master's that focused in plant genetics. I have some traction in the space, largely because of my role, my former role with CrossFit uh, corporate. And so I helped design and implement their training programs. And so I definitely have um, kind of that exercise piece as well, perhaps not the same type of exercise as your audience, but definitely kind of nutrition with the lens for the athlete, for sure. Well, that's great. Just the last podcast that, that we put out was about training with power for the cyclist, the master cyclist. So myself included, and certainly others that are listening in, are doing some more of that CrossFit-like activity as a part of trying to be stronger in their, perhaps their main sport. Yeah. Uh, yeah. I was just going to say, I mean, the cross-training stuff is great. I mean, we can argue all day about what's happening under the hood on the physiology end, but just even from a, a mental break perspective, doing something different to then provide the motivation to get back on the bike and also kind of preventing those injuries. So yeah, I think that's great for your, your group to be doing something like that. Yeah, totally. And I have actually spent more of my life in the gym than I have on a bike. Mm. Uh, and so I have never had to be convinced that working out in a gym was a good thing. Uh, but I did get away from it for a while at, when I started focusing more on cycling. And I really, as I got older, I found that I was suffering from 
the disuse of some muscles that don't get much activity while sitting on a bike. And so I'm having to make up for lost time on that. Well, good. Uh, so I, I said, this is one of my favorite topics and I have so many questions. I, I mean, nutrition and diet. I mean, we could just spend an hour talking about all of my diets over the last 20 years. You know, supplements, I'm a, afraid I'm a bit addicted to supplements. And I have a million questions about that, but, you know, controlling weight and some people talk about disordered eating and just in general being healthy and living a long time. There's just so much that I would love to get into a lot of detail with you, but I know we'd only have a little bit of time together. So we have to choose something. And the topic that I want to spend our time together on is recovery. Mm. Older athletes, as they get older, we find that we recover less well. And so there's a desire to try to find things that help. The easy stuff to find might be like getting a massage gun or compression boots or taking an ice bath or these things which happen after the fact. But really, I think where there's a lot to be gained is on being a healthier person, having your body be better at recovering, better at adapting to the stresses that we put on it. And so that's what I would like to talk about with you here Great. today. Does that sound awesome. good? Yeah, for sure. Excellent. One last thing before we jump into it, for our audience's sake, just know that we're not here promoting a diet or advocating against any diets. People choose their diets for whatever reason, and lots of diets are good, and, uh, and any diet will work. And every diet is better than starving to death. So we're not really trying to convince anybody that you've got to be plant-based or you've got to be low-carb or you've got, you know, any of those things. Lots of these things will work well. And so we're not going to try to talk you out of anything or into anything. We just want to give you the information you can use on your own and maybe recovering better and performing better in your sports is not your top priority. Maybe enjoying your meals and what you like is not the best thing for recovery. Oh, that's your decision. Do you do what you want? I am focused on trying to be able to recover better and I'm going to take EC's advice. <laughs> so talking about then this, what are we talking about? Primarily, it's this idea of, you know, you've exercised and now you want to recover from the damage from that and then adapt, super compensate for that damage and then be stronger for your next workout, speaking simplistically. And so you also need to refuel. So you're repairing things. You're trying to deal with inflammation, et cetera. And related to that is this whole idea of, well, you know, a lot of what I'm doing is using my muscles. And, and being an old gym rat, I'm always interested in having bigger, stronger muscles. So what do I do? How do I, is there some diet mechanism for helping me to do that? Uh, and we all know that, you know, as we get older, sarcopenia is staring at us and waiting for us to not be careful and so how do we use our athletics to help us stay active and fit and strong long as possible into our life? Mm -hmm. So anyway, these are the things that I, I think would, if we had really good answers for that stuff, I would personally be satisfied and thankful. <laughs> Based on an earlier conversation that we had, I understand that your approach generally is to talk about like frameworks or overarching concepts Mm -hmm. rather than focusing on very specific subjects. And I love frameworks. I'm an old consultant myself, and frameworks was uh, part of the trade. And so 
I don't know how you think we ought to eat this elephant here, but why don't I turn it over to you and you can walk us through your thoughts. Yeah. I mean, I think the first place to start is I think people think that their goals, their, their goals are very unique in that recovery is that much different than pursuing weight loss and or longevity. And in fact, they're not. They trend together. What, what I would do for someone in terms of recovery is very similar to what I would do for someone who's looking to lose weight. And is also very similar to what I would do for someone who's looking to increase performance. These mechanisms are redundant with each other. And so when we want to look at things like recovery and inflammation, th- these are also factors in people who have excess weight to lose or also, again, want to improve performance or just their overall health. And so a lot of what I am going to say, although we're gearing it towards recovery, it also can have implications for other goals as well, whether or not it's increasing performance directly and or just increasing recovery from performance, just general overall health, or even people who want to lose excess weight, this can be good for them as well. Well, that's great. Yes. Sounds simpler. I know it is. Unfortunately, people think they have these goals that are are so unique that it doesn't overlap with others. And in fact, they do. (laughs) Awesome. Yeah. And then the other thing I was going to say is I'm, I'm not here to promote a specific diet, but there are certain things that we can't ignore or think that aren't relevant. And that's really where my 10 principles came from, which I think I shared with you, but that's the kind of this overarching framework. Some of the things that are true that we can't ignore are things like calories matter. (laughs) And then how those calories are distributed into macronutrients matter. And then the quality of the food in terms of vitamins and minerals that we're getting within those calories and macronutrients matter. But then things like the psychology matters as well. And so this is where we have, in the end, we've got thousands and thousands of different diets, but the underlying principles to them are, okay, tell me the total amount of food you're eating, tell me the quality of that food, tell me what's kind of realistic for you on like a mental psychological level, tell me what your goals are, and then we can kind of point you in the right direction. So that's where I think some of the confusion is as well, is is people are latching onto these details of should I eat the halibut or the salmon? And it's like, okay, you know, what's your overall caloric intake? Is that appropriate for you and your goals? Yeah, that makes sense. There is so much crazy talk that goes on in the internet. It's a good lesson, I think, for people in general, and my children in particular, understanding how you can't just believe everything you read or hear. And yes, anybody who has, I would argue, anybody who has legitimately tried to lose weight knows that calories matter. But that's not the whole story. Then there's compliance, right? You know, and so some foods for some people have different effects than other foods. And so it's a, there's a lot going on there. And also, you know, macros you talked about, you know, and I'm a protein guy, but other than having a a whey shake, there's very few things, which is a macro. It's usually food. Mm. And it, and so how do you figure out what to eat? Because yeah, I want this much protein. Well, you can't get that unless you're just going to have six protein shakes a day. And that wouldn't be very attractive to me anyway. So do you want to walk us through your 10 principles then? I don't know if you want to start there. I might start with protein. I mean, you've mentioned a few times. I do think it's relevant to your population for reasons you've mentioned. So perhaps yeah, you start there. Yes. Awesome. Yeah. I mean... I think protein is definitely of interest for your group, partially for the performance angle, also because of recovery. If we're going to rebuild our tissues to a a stronger level, guess what we need? Protein. Protein makes up virtually everything in the body. And then, yeah, we also have to worry about the sarcopenia, right? So we've got loss of muscle mass as we age. That is inevitable. That is going to happen. And we have to buffer against that. So 
I do put out a specific number for our target protein level. Is it going to be the perfect number for everybody in every circumstance? No, of course not. But hey, we got to talk about some specifics to give people some guidelines to start. And so the number that I do put out there is 0.7 grams of protein per pound of their current weight. Now, if they have a lot of extra weight they want to lose, let's say their target weight is 30 pounds away from that current weight, then perhaps they're going to use their target weight instead. Otherwise, they'll find that their protein's a little too high to sustain. But I think that's a great place to start. And I've worked with a lot of different individuals, um, you know, not necessarily your exact population, but a lot of different individuals who are active. And it is hard to hit that number, 0.7 grams of protein per pound of body weight. You mean hard because it, it's hard to eat that much of it? They'll find that they can do it. And in fact, I was going to get into that just briefly, that the reason why I selected that number, it comes from a lot of different sources, but it's actually lower than a lot of numbers you'll hear either from the weightlifting community or the bodybuilding community. It's not what I would consider excessive by any means. It puts protein on the order of 20 to 25% of your overall calories, which is well within kind of recommended ranges for a protein. But people will find that day in and day out, no, they're not sustaining that number. So for your athletes, it's also a number that will be protective of sarcopenia, according to the literature. So that would be something interesting for your athletes. Hey, where do I end up each day on protein? I think where that what they're going to find is they'll do it for a couple days and then realize they they fell off after a few. And and that's experience working with my own clientele in in the CrossFit population. I actually, I eat more than that. Mm -hmm. And the reason for that is because I find it very satiating. Mm Mm-hmm. And so it keeps me from eating more other things. Correct. And, and that's why you find protein is often a key component of a lot of weight loss diets because of its satiation. And, and so that's another kind of great factor is as well. I do kind of give the range of 0.7 up to one grams of protein per pound of body weight. But, you know, there's no sense in making a recommendation of a number that no one's going to hit. <laughs> so I kind of have them start at the 0.7. And if they find that they're doing fine there... And, you know, maybe they're an athlete with a higher volume. Great. Try 0.8. Great. Try 0.9. You know, you're going to figure out, okay, I feel better at this number and, or I can't sustain this number. And that kind of gives you your answer of where you're going to be. Right. So some of the things that I have uh, heard in, in the recent years is related to how having more protein is actually not great from a longevity point of view. Mm -hmm. So yes, you need enough. And losing all your muscle mass and being frail, and then you're gonna and you're gonna have a serious accident when you stumble. Well, that's bad for longevity, also. But always having high mTOR activity mm-hmm. is what they talk about. It, it seems to be negative for mm-hmm. for other reasons. Can you talk about that at all? I mean, should should we pulse the protein? You know, you have high protein on days where you had hard workouts and low on other days, and. No, I wouldn't do I wouldn't do the kind of cyclic cyclic nature to diets. I don't recommend that. I don't think people are even near the baseline to then add that level of precision. Um, and this is true of athletic populations as well. You know, part of the problem with nutrition discussions is we use the words more and less. Those are sort of irrelevant, absent of actually knowing what number we're talking about for you. Like, you know, if somebody's eating 40 grams of protein a day, they might think that's a lot. Now for you, you're like, that's not a lot. But you know, we can't really make these claims about I should be eating more protein or less protein until we know, okay, what are we talking about? Is it the 0.7 grams per pound of body weight? We're talking about 0.9 grams, we're talking about 1.5, like, what's the actual number? And so that's where a lot gets lost in the nutrition discussion is we're kind of making these discussions on qualitative terms, not quantitative terms, right? 
Now, I think where there is some literature on protein, uh, there's two ways I want to go with this. One is if somebody is having a very high protein diet relative, right? Again, I'm using that relative term. What has to happen to carbohydrates and fat? Inevitably, they have to come down. There's only so much food we eat in a day. So if we have a lot of steak, a lot of uh, protein shakes, a lot of chicken, we're probably not getting a lot of fruits and vegetables, right? And so therefore, by default, we might be crowding out some of the other nutrients that are necessary as well. That is one thing. There is some literature to suggest the gut a gut microbiome has some implications from high protein. But again, it's sort of because of the absence of fruit and vegetables. So that's my main concern when somebody talks about a really high protein diet is how does the rest of the diet compensate because you're eating all of this chicken, tuna, whatever. It's not necessarily that the chicken is so problematic. It's now that we've left other nutrients out of the picture. That's sort of obvious once you've said it. Of course, it never dawned on me that that would be the rationale for it. So yeah, well, thanks for that. Yeah. So um, did, was there more on protein? I think, again, people love um, jumping. My, my uh, A colleague of mine, he's called it misapplied precision. And I think I see that constantly in the nutrition space where they'll hear these ideas about pulsing their protein or, or changing their macros on different days or taking this supplement at X time. And it's like, you can't even tell me the total number of grams of protein you're having on average. You can't tell me your total calories you're having on average. You can't tell me how many fruits and vegetables you're having on average. Like these are kind of the basic underpinnings that we need to get started with before we worry about making the, the system more complicated. And, and the research on timing for most, most uh, situations is unless it's changing the overall quantity that you're eating, it, it doesn't matter much. Now, maybe Olympians kind of high end performance, we can get into that. But for the most part, these timing methodologies of don't eat at this time or only eat at this time ultimately end up changing the overall quantity. And that's the factor that we have to really care about. So people might start latching onto a, I can't eat at this time, or I only eat at this time. But what's really changing is now you had more or less protein. <laughs> and that's sort of the confounding factor in all of this. And so I'd, I'd much rather people focus on some really basic stuff and get consistent there. Like, Get consistent at 0.7 and tell me that you're doing it before we start worrying about pulsating with with rest days and so on. Yeah, well, I guess that makes sense. I mean, you've got to kind of apply an 80-20 rule on all of these things so that you're focusing on the most important stuff that's left. And Correct. as you nail the bigger things, then you have afforded yourself the opportunity to focus on the less important things, but that's what's left. You know, I guess that's the whole marginal gains kind of idea. Yeah. And I also think, you know, sometimes, and I see this within my community, I definitely have a lot of type A's, you probably do as well. There is a point at which optimizing my protein intake will be outperformed by training harder. Like I might be in the weeds of wondering if I should be at 0.93 of a multiplier or 0.95 of a multiplier, but if I'm not working hard on the bike, that's, a, that's irrelevant. <laughs> yeah, and yeah. so sometimes we have to kind of keep bringing up all of the bigger factors and getting all of those consistent. How's my sleep? How's my effort during the workout versus again, you know, whether or not my amino acids from this way shake are slightly better than the casein, you know, shake. <laughs> Since we're talking about recovery in particular here today, you hear about plant-based being mm -hmm. better for inflammation and some sources of protein being worse for inflammation maybe not because of the protein itself, but what it comes with. Mm -hmm. But, you know, so like if I was, in fact, I am actually thinking of trying to be mm -hmm. more plant-based in my diet, the problem for me becomes, you know, because I'm the big protein eater, well, what am I going to eat? I mean, mm -hmm. I can't have my whey shakes anymore and mm -hmm. I'm not going to have my salmon anymore. So gosh, what am I going to eat? 
so the question, I guess, is, you know, rather than getting too far down in the weeds on plant protein, the question it would be, what does your experience tell you, uh, your, the research that you've read tell you about whether fish versus plant protein or whatever you think is appropriate matter in terms of recovery for the older athlete? Mm. Are they having a different inflammation, chronic inflammation effect on the body, et cetera? Yeah. I mean, I think you actually said it quite well already in that, you know, you don't really sit down and eat protein. You, you eat a food that has a myriad of nutrients in it. And so this is where I see a lot of confusion in nutrition. It's like, should I have the vegan pea shake or should I have the salmon? When really what it is, is it's a collection of amino acids and micronutrients. And we want all of those numbers to get to the level that we need at the end of the day. So when I eat the orange, it's not just vitamin C, it's carbohydrates, a little bit of fiber and a whole collection of micronutrients. When I eat the salmon, it's a bunch of different amino acids with a bunch of different micronutrients. When I eat the pea protein, it's the same thing. So we have all these different nutrients that we need. And across all of the food choices we make in a day, those kind of buckets, if you will, should be filled to the top of the appropriate amount. And so I, I would love for people not to see the salmon as the salmon, but to see it as amino acids, fat, and like I said, micronutrients, and then so on and so forth for all the other foods. And so therefore, your question of whether or not I should have the vegan shake or the, um, the salmon, absent of your decision about ethics on that, is, is that adding to my overall day such that all of my nutrients are correct? <laughs> you know, is that part of the p puzzle that allows me to get all of the right amount of nutrients? And we, we can't give that answer until we do that analysis. And, and that's, gosh, another part of the problem with nutrition is people kind of want like, tell me what I should make for this decision right now, salmon or pea protein. It's like, well, you have to actually tell me your whole diet such that I know what you're eating to be able to tell you which one was the better fit at that moment, because the overall diet is what determines the outcome, not any single choice of it. Well, sure. And that makes sense. But let me push back a second and mm -hmm. just say, let's just assume that I'm getting enough, uh, you know, and there's three dudes and they're all getting enough protein, but one of them is mm -hmm. getting it by eating hamburgers. And one of them is getting it by eating fish. And one of them is mm -hmm. getting it by eating a bunch of pea protein shakes. Mm -hmm. Do any of them have uh, likely different recovery effects? I'm going to push back again. I still need to know the rest of their diet because that perhaps is only a third or fourth of the calories in their day. So I have so many other factors coming into play of, of what's the context for their overall diet. So, you know, like one of the things that I really recommend, it's actually kind of the cornerstone that I recommend before protein is something called the 800 gram challenge. It's to eat 800 grams by weight of fruits and vegetables each day and the individual chooses which fruits and veggies they want. I, I didn't mean to make this about my specific diet approach, but like I set the context for people to eat a certain amount of fruits and veggies for both weight, health and performance reasons. And guess what? One of the most common things I hear about people who do the 800 gram challenge from my athletic population is I feel so much better. I'm recovering faster. I have better performance, which is not surprising given the antioxidant, anti-inflammatory load of the fruits and veggies. So I'm coming back to your question about, you know, the guy with the burgers, the guy with the pea protein and the guy with the salmon. What if the guy with the pea protein, the rest of the day is like candy bars and soda and the guy with the burgers is fruits and vegetables. We have a different outcome or vice versa. So that's where I have to know the whole diet. So just to understand your perspective on that, if they all had a good diet, other than those three variables, that one variable with three states, then would you say that it didn't really matter that much? Correct. Yeah. I mean, if, I, if we were going to equate 
all of, you know, make sure they all have the right micronutrient need, make sure their total calories on the day are appropriate, make sure their macronutrient distribution is favorable, enough protein for recovery, all that stuff. Training's the same, sleep's the same, life stress is the same. I would say they're equivalent in terms of risk. Yeah. Okay. Well, that's clear. (laughs) That sure makes it easier. But look at all those caveats we had to put in, right? And that's the problem is I don't think a lot of people are there with all of those caveats. Well, the issue, I think, is that it just kind of comes back down to this thing that you said to me by email and the first time we communicated about our topic today, which is these little details are not as important as the bigger picture. Yes. And it's it's sort of in this 80-20 rule idea of some of these things, which we hear a lot about on the internet, are down in the 0.1% effect let's make sure we're doing the 20% effect and the 30% effects first. And, you know, and if you're then trying to get ready for some super hard thing, or you're just trying to get that last half a percent in your performance, then yes, there are some other things that you could focus on and really perfect or stop doing things which are hurting you that don't have a big effect, but you want every little thing and you've got all the big things done already. Yeah. And I mean, you know, the USDA, their statistics, just as an example on fruits and vegetables, it's like 80 to 90% of people aren't getting enough fruits and vegetables. That percentage is high enough that that means that's our populations. As much as, you know, we're dealing with more of an active population for both of us, that percentage is astronomical. And I've seen it with my athletes as well. Like they can do the 800 gram challenge for a good number of days, but they aren't perfect. And I'm not, I'm not either. I'm not saying that I'm doing every day perfectly as well. And so that's where more of the gain will be for 90% plus of people then again, worrying about, you know, any one specific choice. Okay. And then also you had said something about timing of Mm. food and that timing really just, you know, like intermittent fasting as a thing was really just a a matter of controlling how many calories so -hmm. that you didn't overeat. Correct. But I, I wanted to just ask, you know, ever since I was a kid going to the gym, there was always this idea of, have protein right after you've lifted. Correct. I mean, is there anything to that or is that one of those 0.1% deals as long as I get enough protein in the 24-hour cycle? Yeah. I think your latter point's more accurate. One of the principles I say is timing only matters to the extent it affects quantity. So generally what the the amino acids that are, and it depends on the workout duration too. I also appreciate you're dealing with endurance athletes. So we are going to probably have to deal with intra uh, session fueling a little bit more, even some high volume days, but absent of that specifics, like let's say you're doing an hour session at the gym, most of the amino acids that are available immediately post-workout are actually from your meal prior because the digestion process is a several hour process, depending on the size of the meal, what was in it, whole foods, not all of this other thing. So it's not like you have the shake and those are then immediately available, immediately available for the muscles anyway. So that post-workout window isn't, isn't that important. Now, for a bodybuilder, and that's where a lot of this stuff comes out of, who's pushing the theoretical limit of how much muscle mass they can put on for a physique, they're trying to kind of always have protein around to optimize the theoretically maximum amount of protein that they sh- or muscle mass that they can have. And so I, inc- I agree with their recommendations to spread protein out during the day and to make sure that they have enough. But you want to think about it as they're kind of like theoretically optimizing their physique versus what do we know is actually necessary for performance and, and muscle mass gain. And it, right. it doesn't seem for like 99% of people that, that timing really does much of anything, assuming they're getting enough quantity. 
But that's where we have some confusion is that people's quantity often ends up changing when they start doing these timing things. So we just have to make sure we understand what variables are at play. Right. And when you said the bodybuilder is optimizing their physique, they're optimizing it for muscle size and definition, not necessarily for being able to ride fast up a mountain for three hours as fast as possible. 100%. Correct. All right. Well, that was all of my questions around protein. Mm. Okay. And there's more than protein. Yeah, <laughs> there is. So shall we talk about, well, why don't we just cover the other macros? Um, is there anything on this, uh, you know, overarching idea related to fat consumption? I mean, uh, mm. you know, the two things that I've, you know, I grew up being told that uh, low fat, that was the way to go because fat had a lot of calories in it. It was, e- it was easy to eat too much. So, mm-hmm. and I ended up resorting to thinking that eating Fig Newtons was like health food and laughing about how silly my mom was for telling me to eat a balanced meal when Fig Newtons was really all that I needed. And then more lately, it's been, you know, the low carb, the high fat. And so there's lots of perspectives on the fat question. Mm, yeah. Specific question then is, is there like a, a minimum amount of fat that a person ought to have mm. from like a hormonal yeah. perspective? Yeah, I don't love fat getting below 20% of the diet. You know, again, percentages are kind of hard because if their overall caloric intake is high, then that might not actually be too low. But generally, uh, I don't like fat below 20%. And of course, their body fat should tell us, you know, where they are in terms of essential body fat, right? Like essential body fat for... um females is like 10 to 13. And I think men is in the single digits or whatever. So yeah, I don't really see a need for athletes, you know, even in the CrossFit population, I wouldn't want a female CrossFit athlete dropping below like 15% or something like that, or a male, I don't know why you'd want to get below 10. Like it's just sort of flirting with areas I don't think are necessary. This is the calories. Percentage body fat. Oh, percentage body fat. So I would know I was saying of the diet, I don't love it dropping below 20% of the calories. I don't love that. But then we should also be able to check in with the person's body fat composition. And that like, if they're kind of flirting with levels that would be kind of more appropriate of a bodybuilding community, that would be concerning for me, right? And I don't know, then maybe there's some very high level sports athletes who do weight competitions in the sense of uh, wrestling that kind of have to flirt with those levels a little bit. For most of us, I think we can stay out of those kind of very, those kind of extreme ranges. But where I was going to go with kind of the low fat, low carb thing is, you know, both of those nutrients are used for energy. <laughs> they can be used for energy. And it's easier to think about them collectively. Like you need the total amount of carbs and fat to be correct in the diet for your goals of choice versus thinking that like fat's better or carbs are better. And then depending on your activity will determine kind of the best ratio between them. So very broad brush, the shorter and more intense you want the activity, the more that you're going to want carbs to be present. And the longer, more endurance the activity, the more likely you can let fat swing high. Now, that doesn't mean that I say that I prefer really high fat diets. I think the higher fat you go, the less fruits and veggies you have in your diet. And so I don't really love that. But that's kind of how it works in terms of the fueling that if you want to do something more high intense, you're going to want those carbs to climb up maybe 40% plus some of our high end CrossFit athletes are probably close to 60% of their diet is carbohydrates. But then if you have someone who's truly that endurance athlete, they might actually let their fat climb 50, 60% going the other way. Right. I guess when we're done here talking about fat, we'll talk about carbs. And yeah. And one of the problems with talking about carbs is there's all kinds of carbs. You know, there's asparagus and there's jelly beans and those are carbs. Correct. You know, you wouldn't want anybody eating 60% of their diet in jelly beans. I assume. 
Careful depends on their caloric need. So remember, macronutrients are have a caloric value. So kind of the first thing that you want to think about is like, do I have caloric control or do I have the right amount of energy? And, and not necessarily from a weight loss perspective, but we could take an athlete. I need the right amount of calories coming in to fuel what this athlete is doing. Now we're going to split up those calories into macronutrients. and We're going to do that in a way that's going to support their goals. And so some is going to go to protein for strength reasons, right, um, for their sport. And then the balance we split between carbs and fat, and we split those carbs and fat based on their, their sport of choice as well as their food choices. But the reason why I kind of push back, no, I would be hard pressed to find someone who I need 60% of whatever from jelly beans. But if we take like the Michael Phelps example, or even I'm sure that you know some in high endurance people who have a very high volume, there is no way, there is no way they can get to their caloric need on asparagus and broccoli. And unfortunately, I see people trying to do that because they've been told that the jelly beans will kill them. There is some point at which we will take lower quality foods for our high volume athletes simply because they need the energy. It's a small population, <laughs> so I don't need a ton of people eating a lot of jelly beans after this podcast. But there is a point at which we just need the calories for those athletes. And there's no way top athletes have that muscle mass, have that volume, and are doing it purely on vegetables. Yeah, well, that makes sense. And to use your own words back at you, what you would worry about would be the jelly beans displacing the fruits and vegetables. So as long as they're getting enough of that and they're getting enough of the mm -hmm. protein and they're getting some minimum amount of fat, but they need more mm -hmm. calories and they're really burning it. So it's mm -hmm. calories in, calories out is still mm -hmm. imbalanced. Yep. <laughs> then perhaps maybe there's a better way, but it, it wouldn't be the end of the world if they, if they met that caloric needs, however they could. They need to at a certain point. Remember, and, and this is something we haven't really gotten to when you kind of mentioned it with the carbs and the jelly bean and the asparagus is... One of the reasons why I love people doing kind of my 800 gram challenge and filling up on fruits and vegetables for the kind of general population, the non Michael Phelps, the non high endurance people, they fill up and feel quite full on a low number of calories. And that's some of the, that's some of the reasons why they're going to experience weight loss on a lot of fruits and vegetables in the diet. This can be true of paleo. This can be true of pick your whole foods diet of choice. They fill up on things because they're physically full of the, the orange and the apples, but they haven't eaten many ca um, calories. That's a problem for a high volume athlete. Somebody who's working out eight hours a day, they can't feel like they had this major meal and then go hit a session hard for two hours. Sometimes we do need to give them calorically dense food so they actually can get through the volume of food they need and still be able to train six hours a day, eight hours a day. You know, you pick the, the volume that they're doing at those high levels that they can't be doing it all on broccoli, even from a logistical perspective. Like how, how could they train after a, a big meal like that? Exactly. Yes. I have wondered about that when I was thinking about your 800 gram challenge, but it sounds like there's nuance in that plan. Yeah. So it ends up only being about six cups, or I always use the fist example, an adult closed fist is about a cup. So for most people that are working out, you know, let's say hour or two per day, they can do it. It's 500 calories or less. At each main meal, you have two cups of fruits and vegetables, throw in some leafy greens that don't really weigh a lot you'll get there. Like, so I don't, I don't let uh, a lot of people say they can't do it. <laughs> but after some volume of fruits and vegetables, like even though calorically an athlete could maybe do the 2400 gram challenge, I don't know that I would recommend it because they're going to be so full of fruits and veggies, they can't go sprint around the track. <laughs> right. So we kind of skipped into uh, carbs. Uh, and I'm not sure we finished up with fats. Mm. 
is there considerations for things like, you know, saturated and unsaturated and within the unsaturated, the poly and the monos and, Mm -hmm. and then in the polys, we've got the omega threes and omega sixes and et cetera. Do you have thoughts about that or any of those in the really important, you better get those right. There's some minimum amount and get that right. Yeah. I think always remembering that food comes as a collection of nutrients is important, right? So, you know, you don't just sit down and eat for the most part, I'm going to come back to this one, but you don't generally sit down and just eat saturated fat. Like even beef that's considered high in saturated fat has monounsaturated and polyunsaturated fats in it. So when you do a whole foods based approach, meat or not, and you vary your sources, what ends up happening is you generally are going to get a nice distribution across the fatty acids. And that's a great place to be. So if if 30% of your calories came from fat, and that broke down into about 10% of each, that's, that's a great place to be. But I don't really recommend people get too in the weeds of trying to track that. Because again, like avocado has a mixture of fatty acids and your beef and your chicken, it's all just a different mixture. So if you just again, eat kind of a varied diet, I think you're going to get pretty close. There is research to suggest that saturated fat is more risky. Now that that doesn't mean that I'm saying saturated fat should be zero. But I do not agree with people pushing saturated fat high. It, it tends to raise cholesterol. Does that mean you're going to die tomorrow? Nope. There's a whole bunch of other factors that come into play to, for making that a risk, but it is certainly a risk factor. So tons of extra butter or tons of extra coconut oil, I don't think is necessary nor health protective. Can it be part of an overall healthy diet? Yes, of course. Should it be the main source in your diet? No, not in my opinion. Well, people can check and see what the effect on their blood cholesterol is and particle counts and all of that. And if they're having a negative effect, Mm -hmm. then they can change what they're eating. Of course. Yeah. Even just that I know a total LDL, people have opinions that it's not the most perfect, accurate way to measure cholesterol. Um, I still think, you know, if they're within the normal ranges that their doctor just sort of does at the general yearly check, that's a good, that's a great place to uh, fall in line with and, and to listen to their doctor on those ranges. Yeah. Yeah. You know, I'm in this population now, my age and with my genetics, that this is something to think about pretty hard. And, you know, and I struggle to understand why people are so aggressive about doing, you know, listening to what they hear on the internet and not listening to their doctor, you know, when Mm. their cholesterol is high and they're saying, yeah, but I saw this guy on the internet and he said that high cholesterol doesn't matter, that that's a, that's a myth and it's a scam. Statins are a conspiracy. Okay, maybe. But once your arteries are all plugged up, now what? It seems like people ought to be sensible. It's only, it really only got one shot at it. So, (laughs) you know, be careful. If you can be healthy, even though your things are uncertain, you can still hedge your bets on things. And and what's the big deal of eating a little bit less saturated fat? How how could that be like the end of the world? Just yeah. if your doctor is saying you're doing the wrong thing, maybe you ought to listen just in case. Anyway. Yeah, I, I, I'm. there has been a conventional medicine backlash, unfortunately, and I'm pretty strong in the favor of the MDs and the DOs. Um, you know, they go through a, a good amount of schooling and training to get there. And most people don't go into that kind of debt because they want to be bad people <laughs> or make bad recommendations. Like, so uh, it's unfortunate to see, of course, the system isn't perfect. And so I do recommend that if they have an MD or DO that they're not driving with, just go find another opinion, go find another opinion. And every field doesn't have a 100% success rate with all of the people in it. 
And so, yeah, go get another MD or DO, but there certainly is a lot of training that goes into having one of those positions and um, that, that it should carry more weight than, than, you know, myself or whatever, somebody on the internet giving an opinion for sure. Yeah. Well, anyway, enough of that. So uh, you didn't talk about uh, omegas, Mm. you know, EPA, DHA. I mean, is that something, is that a, you know, is that one of those big things and you really ought to make sure you're getting enough of that uh, and that helps with inflammation? I just read a study that said that it doesn't actually help with muscle growth, Mm -hmm. muscle synthesis, but apparently it does lower triglycerides. So that's, Mm. you know, that's a good thing if you're a person like myself who tends to have high triglycerides. Yeah. I I mean, I don't recommend uh, supplements. I don't take supplements myself and I don't uh, recommend fish oil. I think the the research and the reason why we keep hearing, oh, it works and oh, it doesn't work is is because the effect, if any, is very, very small. And that, again, you're going to have a greater effect by making sure your your overall calories are appropriate, getting enough fruits and veggies, uh, having enough protein, exercise, all of that stuff, right? Sleep, exercise, blah, blah, blah. And so, no, I don't think the effect is very great. The other thing you have to remember about these studies, and this is where we get confused often, is lowering triglycerides is not the same thing as reversing death disease or improving mortality, right? So we'll see studies, and I'm not putting down the studies, the studies have very real value to prove mechanistically what is going on. But lower triglycerides doesn't mean this person will now live longer. So there's oftentimes people will be like, oh, I'm taking this supplement because it improves testosterone or, oh, I'm taking this supplement because it it does whatever inflammation. It's like, okay, well, tell me about the proof for actual increased pounds on the back squat, actual faster race times, death, disease. I want to know about the clinical outcomes. I don't want to know how markers are changing because markers change all the time. Um, And again, that's not putting down the research. Those are help putting together the puzzle pieces, but we can't hang our hat and say, well, now that triglycerides lower, therefore I am uh, prevented against heart disease. So you wouldn't say have fish some of the time because that's a good source for omega-3s. I would say have fish because it's a good whole food source um, that has protein um, micronutrients that we need. Yeah. Okay. So, and having done that, voila, you get some omega-3s too. Yeah. Do I think that the the fish's magic is in the omega-3s? No. I think the fish's magic is in the fact that it's giving you nutrients you need in the appropriate caloric load. All right. Well, was there anything else that uh, anybody wanted to talk about related to fat? And then I have some questions about carbohydrate. I think I'm good there. So carbohydrates. Uh, Again, we're talking about trying to improve or if possible, optimize recovery for older athletes, recovery from exercise, and the impact of diet, of nutrition on that. And I have always heard that sugar... Mm whatever the details of whatever that means are inflammatory and Mm -hmm. therefore anyway this is what i've heard would be a detriment to your body's ability to recover from these stresses that athletes put on their bodies and then the second one would be fiber but let's let's talk about sugar first sure yeah i think um One of the things to understand about inflammation is that any food in excess can be inflammatory. Excess weight itself is inflammatory. So anything in excess can be inflammatory. And so we could put even fat in that category as well. What sugar does not have that fruits and vegetables have in their carbohydrates is is not necessarily a different molecule of uh, glucose or fructose. It's that fruits and vegetables also have anti-inflammatories and antioxidants by way of um, vitamins and minerals, as well as what's called those phytochemicals. I'm sure you know about them or heard about them. Like this is how red wine has been marketed as healthy with resveratrol. That's a phytochemical. 
curcumin in turmeric is a, a phytochemical. So there's thousands of these different compounds that have anti-inflammatory effects. And so when you compare the apple to sugar, the apple will appear anti-inflammatory partially because of the other nutrients in it, not necessarily because of the sugar in it. And so that's part of the discussion here to understand is that when we're looking at carbohydrates for recovery is why I like people having this baseline level of fruits and veggies in their diet. It's not just because I'm helping to keep calories in line, which could by way of weight control by be anti-inflammatory, but also because they're taking in anti-inflammatories and, and vitamins, minerals, and uh, phytochemicals. Okay. So sugar is in itself not bad. It's just that it displaces potentially things which are good. Or sugar in excess could be bad, right? So it's still coming back to total quantity. That's that's part of the equation here to determine good or bad. Yeah. Okay. Well, I, I certainly in my mind have bought into the demonization of sugar, added sugar. It's a calorically dense food. There you go. It's mm -hmm. very easy to eat a lot of it. And then I didn't get anything out of it except for energy, which if I was using that energy right now, that's cool. I mean, yeah, I bring cliff bars on rides and mm -hmm. and I have eaten actually jelly beans mm -hmm. for that purpose. But if I'm just sitting around on my couch eating sugar, I have all that extra energy that I'm not putting to any use. And then things that I don't like start to happen. Correct. Including yeah, you've nailed it. reaching in and grabbing another handful and another handful. There you've nailed it. It's not satiating at all. It's the dose. You've nailed it. It's the dose and the satiation. And again, you know, fruits and vegetables fill us up. We feel physically full faster than we would on the jelly beans. And so that's a lot of the problem with the added sugar foods is if the dose is correct, it not, is not necessarily a problem. It's just the dose is not often correct. They're too tasty. They're too delicious. We eat them too much of them too quickly. That's, that's the problem is, is the dose is now at a level that is becoming problematic. And, and that's what's so commonplace in the foods that, are, that we overeat. It's the processed foods. They're very calorically dense by way of carbs and fat. We do not have good uh, natural mechanisms to control how many chips and Doritos we eat and all that stuff. And so we end up eating too much. Yeah. Well, and so one of the, where that leads us to then is uh, fiber. So you're mm. eating the apple versus the piece of sugar. They might have the same amount of sugar, but the apple has a lot of, in addition to the phytonutrients, it's got a lot of fiber in it. You've got it. What are your thoughts about making sure people get fiber is, I mean, if they're going to eat 800 grams of fruits and vegetables, they're going to be getting some fiber. Yep. They are. Now it depends which ones they choose. They might not actually get the amount of fiber they need. If they do a lot of, let's say, watermelon, they're not going to get all the, uh, the fiber they need. But yeah, the 800 gram challenge can get them very close to that kind of 25 to 35 grams of fiber that's recommended per day. And of course, they're going to eat some other things that, that probably have fiber in it. But yeah, fiber is great. I mean, I think it's probably the most underrated nutrient out there. Um, you know, we hear so much about gut health these days and how important your gut microbiome is. And, and guess what fiber does? It feeds the good microbiota in your gut. And so the, the ones that are, quote, anti-inflammatory and associated with health, they are going to use the fiber for energy. And so people are oftentimes worried about probiotics and stuff like that. And it's like, hey, let's first look at what's in our foods. Let's make sure that those have enough fiber to feed the species that you want. Okay. So fiber, getting enough fiber, and, and maybe we can talk about what that means enough is an important part of a good diet that would be optimal for recovering from athletic exercise? I think so. I think so. Um, you have your very low carb um, people who say they don't need that or even carnivore like athletes. I think it's more health protective and more 
likely to aid recovery when you have fiber and those phytochemicals present in plants. Yeah. Yeah, that makes sense. That also would seem like, and I guess everybody's digestive process is different and even mine is different from year to year. But one of the things that you, to be really a healthy person and not carry any extra weight, which a a cyclist, a runner, you know, these people worry about that, is to have a good, efficient elimination process. Mm -hmm. And uh, fiber, I think, is a part of having that work well. Totally. Not not carrying any extra weight that's not Mm. doing you any good. Yeah. I mean, certainly, I think first looking at overall caloric load, if we really want to talk about weight and optimizing weight to strength ratio for our athletes, right? That's going to come before elimination. But yeah, I mean, we have to look and make sure that, you know, daily elimination is is happening and going well. Yeah. Okay. Well, so uh, anything else under the carb heading that uh, you think is worth sharing with people? I don't think so at the moment. (laughs) Okay. So let's talk about the weight loss thing. Because a lot Mm. of people, you know, and I'll admit that I'm in that group, chronically in that group, look at endurance exercise as a great way to control weight. Mm. And sometimes it becomes a great way to justify eating stuff that Mm. I I maybe wouldn't eat otherwise. I wouldn't give myself Mm. permission, but hey, I just burned 2000 calories. Yeah. Where's that cake? Yeah. (laughs) And to some extent, as long as I'm keeping my weight under control, and if maybe I'm Mm. getting my fruits and vegetables and proteins and enough of fats, then why not? Mm -hmm. Why shouldn't Mm -hmm. I have that piece of cake? I I mean, I think that's what you'd say, right? Generally, yeah. I think be careful on using um, any apps or trackers that are telling you how many calories you, quote, burned in your session. Um, Ah. Use use your body. (laughs) Your body is your best tracker of whether or not you're eating the right number of calories and how those macronutrients are distributed. So that's that's one thing. I get a lot of people that are confused well, let's come back to that because I'm very interested in understanding why my app that told me how many calories I burned is wrong. Because they're based on, um, it's based on formulas that are making a lot of assumptions about your intensity, your weight, you, you know, your body composition. There's no way it can be right. Now, that doesn't mean they're worthless, but what it does mean is check in with your own body size. <laughs> like, yeah. if your weight isn't changing and your body composition is not changing favorably, I don't care what the app says. You're eating too much. <laughs> I totally would get the idea that figuring out calorie burn based on heart rate would be really tricky. Easy mm-hmm. for that to be, you know, too high or too low. Mm-hmm. But I think you are, I think it's also true, maybe to a lesser extent, but still also true that even if you're using something like a power meter where mm-hmm. you can, you have measured the amount of energy you have put into your bicycle, mm-hmm. that the the computer that is taking that information is then multiplying that by some factor that says, mm-hmm. oh, but this much of energy you then put out is heat and blah, 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 blah. Mm-hmm. And so you didn't burn just those calories that's in those joules from the power mm-hmm. meter. You burned that times one point whatever. Mm-hmm. I mean, is that true? Look, those meters are doing the best that they can. I am not putting down the trackers per se. I, I think you've just mentioned, though, that they're like making these assumptions and multipliers. There's inherent error in doing that. There's no way that they're getting it right down to your body composition, your power output, the distribution that you have of fat versus muscle to know what's exactly happening for you. And guess what? We can do better. We can track your total intake in terms of food, counting up the calories in your food, and comparing to what your body looks like. Those are our best outcomes to use for measurement of the system, not what the app or tracker says that I did in any single one hour. 
I do think the more your activity looks, I'm going to say the word normal, the more accurate those are. What do I mean by that? Uh, biking, running, maybe even swimming for um, general accepted paces. I think those are going to be relatively okay because we have a lot of data on that. What don't we have a lot of data on? Uh, high intensity pull-ups and uh, squat cleans with a barbell, right? Like those mar- those trackers are not going to be very good at, let's say, a CrossFit type activity as much as running at an eight mile pace. That still means though, however, the eight mile pace is still going to have error eight miles per hour pace. Uh, that's still going to have some error in it for sure. And I just don't see the utility of why we need to use those um, that accurately. We have, again, your intake and we have your body composition and we can work with those. Well, and it's got to be true that an individual, a normal, you know, 99% of people, they can tell if they're putting on weight or losing weight. They, you know, in a very short order, they don't have to get on the scale to see if it's really true and then adjust for water weight or, you know, that kind of thing. They know. Totally. Yeah. I think we know ourselves. um, We've we've seen ourselves so many times in the mirror. I think you're dead on. I think, you know, it's fine to go ahead and get your body composition tested and all that stuff. But I think people inherently know pretty, pretty quickly what's what's changing, you know, even weight is a great example, because people when they add muscle can gain weight, but you know, very quickly, if that's um, the weight you want, or the weight you don't want. Right. I see that we're running out of time here. Let me try to hit you with a couple of things and just get your thoughts on them. The big boogeyman for dieting for you know, weight control just in general, but maybe it even gets into getting enough protein, as you have mentioned, is compliance. People mm. doing what they say that they intend to do, but, you know, some people are good at it and some people aren't good at it. I mean, tricks, uh, any ideas, thoughts that you have on this? Yeah, um, there's two. The, the first is my two first steps of kind of the adding the fruits and vegetables and adding a certain amount of protein, I purposely by design have no restrictions in them. I'm not taking any foods off the table. I'm not telling you can't have your wine or your dark chocolate. I'm saying hit these two checkpoints, get enough fruits and veggies in your diet, get enough protein in your diet. Let's do that first and, and see where you are and then worry about getting more restrictive. So I think that's the first thing is don't start with these elimination or extreme approaches that are not what you're currently doing. Like let's <laughs> so keep it simple. First of all. Yeah. Like don't go like, I'm going to, do this totally different thing than I've is way different than I've ever done before. I, I just don't think that's a great place to start. The other thing is it, it does ultimately come down to the person's choice for the most part in terms of this accountability and motivation thing. And I've used this example before. I do think there are things in our life we can truly outsource. And I use this example all the time, taxes being one of them. I, I'm not good at taxes. I don't do my taxes. I outsource that to somebody who's highly more competent than I am and skilled there. I don't think nutrition is one of them. I don't because it's too ingrained in our life and we use it too many times per day and it could be available 24-7 if we want it to be. And so unlike other things where we could maybe get a trainer and go for an hour at the gym, this is going to be something that really does rest on you. And and I think there is going to be a point at which you're sick of the cycle or sick of not doing it that you will just make the decision and, and change. Yeah. And hopefully, though, you you do it in a way that's sustainable and realistic. Like, that's my first point. Don't do it in a way that's like, I'm only going to drink one shake a day and and somehow fight through the hunger for 23 hours. Well, and I guess, you know, related to that is that everybody's a little different. 
not just their physiology, but their ethics as it comes, as it mm. relates to food and, you know, even their interests. Uh, you know, I'm, I had used the example of people who just enjoy eating and that, and that's more important to them than recovering well from exercise. And they're willing mm. to be suboptimal there so that they can be more optimal in what's more important to them. Yeah. Interesting. It's so personal. You really sort of have to do it yourself in order to get it right. Yeah. And, and that's an, that's a great point too. I've, I deal with people who get stressed, very stressed about making nutrition choices. And we have to also remember that some of those, those neuroses are not healthy either from a, a mental health stress perspective, right? So there is a point at which making sure that you're enjoying the process uh, could outperform like getting the perfect diet, right? Right. So my last area then, and then we'll set you free to help the world with their nutrition huh. is uh, supplements. I think you said something about not really being a fan, but mm -hmm. people who maybe they have trouble getting enough protein and, mm -hmm. and they do a plant-based diet and so, and they just can't have another sure. six cups of asparagus to get their protein. So protein supplement. Yeah. But then there's things like, you know, vitamin D or, you know, taking magnesium or, you know, things which you hear, everybody hears if they are listening, whether it's true or not, people tend to be missing certain things are low on certain things. What do you think? Yeah, I agree. The protein supplements sort of in its own category. Um, I, I take, you know, protein powder just for flexibility and sustainability for food choices. I, I agree with you. It could be a great source for vegans or vegetarians as well. And I don't totally see that as, as the same bucket as kind of the, you know, the pill supplements. So Pill supplements, there's just not a ton of evidence for them. And here's the deal is if I'm being perfectly honest, I've tried a slew of supplements. I've done a lot, <laughs> but there's a difference for me recommending them as they're like, there's a lot of evidence for this versus, yeah, try it and see what you think. You know what I mean? Because there is always going to be the placebo effect. And guess what? A placebo effect is still an effect. So if somebody really likes something, or for example, they started on a new supplement routine, it also coincided with them changing their diet, like more power to them, you know, assuming it's a, it's a safe supplement, great. But from an evidence standpoint, there's there's not a lot of evidence to to strongly recommend supplements. And part of that problem is, again, if we look at some of our basic statistics, we know 80 to 90% of people aren't eating enough fruits and vegetables. We know that over 70% of people are overweight or obese. How is magnesium going to do anything, right? Like, that's where we kind of are, are missing the boat, I think, on a lot of this, that like, let's set some basic controls in place. And, and then maybe we would see some more evidence of where and how these supplements are helpful. But I think until we kind of get some basic fundamental things in place with quality and quantity, um, the supplements will continue not to show much effect. Got you. Yeah, that's one of my addictions at the moment. <laughs> Actually, for a long time, but I'm, I'm trying to solve that addiction. EC, thank you very much. This has been thank very you. educational. I, I hope everyone listening has enjoyed it and learned as much as I have. Thank you. Is, is there anything else that you'd want to add? And, and before you answer, uh, I've got some contact information from you and I'll mm. put that in the show notes so people can reach out to you directly if they have questions about this. And one of the things that I want to point out is that you've got a, a master class that I saw mm. on your website that mm -hmm. if somebody really wanted to take a deep dive into this topic, they yeah. could really get educated there, it looked like. So tell us a little bit about that and also if you had any last thoughts. Yeah, well, thank you so much for the discussion. Um, my masterclass, yeah, it's it's goes over those 10 principles that we talked about. That's kind of the why, that's the underpinning to I think most diets out there or a lot of the concepts people need to understand. 
But at the end of that, people are like, well, that's interesting, but now what do I do in the kitchen? And so the masterclass also has kind of an eight-week program to go through with me live to help them understand their choices. And we do data analysis because, again, like I said before, we can talk about more or less or high or low, but hey, let's take some data on your diet and we're going to figure out where you are and where you can go based on your goals. So that's the masterclass. And I'll actually, I'm not sure when this is airing, but I'll have another live group kicking off um, early April so they can check that out. We'll try to get this thing out say first week of March. So that'll give people some time if there's still space available. And all right. Well, thanks again. Have a great day, everybody. I'll wrap it up here. Thank you. Alrighty. Bye-bye. Thank you so much for listening in to our discussion with EC Sinkowski. I hope you found EC's tips as interesting and useful as I did. If you have questions for EC, check out the show notes, where among other things, you can find links to the Optimize Me Nutrition website. And if you head over to the wiseathletes.com website, you can send us a question to address on the podcast, see all of our episodes, subscribe to our podcast, and you can sign up for our newsletter. If you are on social media and enjoyed this episode, please post about it. That would be a great help.